Let's go ahead and, and bow our heads and commit our time to the Lord. Father, we want to learn today. We want to be instructed. We want to, uh, we want to leave with a greater grasp of the authority of your word. We want to leave feeling that we are uh, or that we are under your authority, that we are people submitted, that you are the Lord and we are not the Lord. We are not running our lives by our own wisdom, uh, but we are opening your word and saying, speak for your servants here. We pray that you give us hearts to receive, uh, overcome objections in our hearts, overcome doubts and the roots of unbelief that would spread far and wide in our thinking about your word so that we are grounded on the rock of truth and can grow thereby in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning again. Our, our aim these next couple of weeks is uh, to spend some time in the doctrine of Scripture. You might wonder why we're beginning with the doctrine of Scripture. Why not begin with the doctrine of creation? Since in the beginning, that's kind of what happened in the beginning of our Bibles, or even begin even better, begin with the doctrine of God since he was before the beginning. Uh, So why begin with the doctrine of Scripture? Well, the answer, we could answer it with another question. Where are we going to go to get our doctrine of creation? Where are we going to go to get our doctrine of God? We're going to go to the Scriptures. We're going to go to God's Word, and so it helps us, I think, at the very outset to get an understanding of what what are these writings to us Um, what's the origin of the scriptures and how do these ground our faith moving forward as we study other topics. So here's the key concept. I think I put this in your outline. Authority and inerrancy. Inerrancy has to do with the truthfulness and trustworthiness of the Bible. It's accurate in everything that it proposes and everything that it states, everything that it claims. So authority and inerrancy have to do, have everything to do with authorship. Consider the questions, why must I believe this? That's an authority issue, right? Why must I believe this? Why must I obey this? Those are authority questions. And is this accurate? Is this story true? The answer to those questions depends on the answer to this question, who wrote it? So think about it this way. If, if I gave you a notebook full of instructions on how to repair a lawnmower, there would be at least one thing that you would need to know immediately when I gave you that notebook, and that would be, who wrote this? Matt, did you write this? Because if, if I wrote it, then it loses, immediately loses all of its credibility. And, and when we go to God's word, all the things that it claims, it claims authoritatively. And so everything depends on who wrote this collection of books, this book that we have before us. So as we get into authority, we're going to talk about these two big concepts, authority and inerrancy, uh, Wayne Groom is going to help us define what the authority of Scripture means. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Now, that's, that's Grudem's definition. The question is, does the Bible agree with Grudem's definition? Does the Bible itself make this kind of massive claim to its own authority. Because some think that the Bible, yeah, you know, some of it comes from God clearly, 
a lot, maybe even a lot of it comes from God, but man had their hands on it and they kind of mess things up every now and then. For the most part, God got his message through, but it's got some errors here and there. Okay, well, that's the question we're going to consider this morning, the authority of God's word. So the Bible claims divine authorship in many different kinds of ways. We want to explore some of those uh, here this morning. The first, the first way is the most explicit, and that would be, thus saith the Lord and the consequences of dismissing, dismissing prophetic utterances. One of the most frequent phrases found in the Old Testament is this phrase, thus saith the Lord. It occurs hundreds and hundreds uh, of times. Now, the language that's used there when the prophets say, thus saith the Lord, is identical to the language of ancient messengers of ancient kings. So the messenger of an ancient king would come into the town in the king's empire, and he would stand in the streets, and in whatever language it was, he would say, thus saith king whoever. And that could not be challenged or questioned by the people because the messenger wasn't bringing his own message. He was bringing the message of the king. And so when these prophets stood and they said, thus saith the Lord, they were saying far more than more or less, this is God's word, you know, eat the meat, spit out the bones. That was not what Isaiah was saying. When Isaiah said, thus saith the Lord, it meant you obey this, you'll be blessed because these are God's words. You disobey this, you're not disobeying me. It's not personal. You are disobeying God. Thus saith the Lord. And these happen all over the place. They're claiming that their words were authoritative words of God. A couple of occurrences of this, we could look at dozens of these. Deuteronomy 18, 19, and 20. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak any word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So if you've ever seen the Discovery Channel show that used to come on before about the most dangerous jobs, well, here it is. To stand up and say, I'm a prophet of God. What I'm about to say is from Yahweh. This is, this is direct. This is hot off the press. God is saying this to his people. You better believe it or you die. <laughs> and so that, it's a dangerous job. This is 1 Samuel 13, classic episode of, of Saul and, and Samuel. Apparently Saul gives instruction to Samuel. He says, you're going to have to wait seven days, and then I'll come to you. Then you offer sacrifices, and everything else will transpire from there. I'm just summarizing here so we don't read this entire thing. And Saul gets antsy. Saul waits the seven days, and he looks around, and Samuel's still not there. And Saul says, hey, fire up the pits. Let's offer the sacrifices. And then Samuel shows up right after the sacrifice has been offered. And you'll see in italics there what Samuel says to Saul when he, when he smells the sacrifice burning. And he says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. To which Saul could have said, hold on, Samuel. You sound like you got a God complex here going on. Because actually the one who told me to wait seven days was you. That came out of your mouth. I watched your mouth form those words. That was your command. But Samuel, Samuel knew his words were from God. That command was not originated in Samuel. It originated in God. And Samuel was simply the mouthpiece and the spokesman for that. And, and so in no uncertain terms, Samuel says, the proof is in the pudding. I'll show you that those were God's words because my response to you is, your dynasty is over. Your dynasty began with you and your dynasty will end with you as of today because of this disobedience, not to me, 
but to God. When I said, thus saith the Lord, I meant, thus saith the Lord. The Lord said that, his authoritative word, and you resisted it. So, that's the first. And there are hundreds of occasions of thus saith the Lord in the Old Testament where we clearly come away from the passage knowing that that wasn't merely Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Samuel, whomever. That was God speaking those words. They were recorded and written by them, but they ultimately proceed from the mouth of God. Well, what about the rest of the Bible? Because sometimes the criticism comes at evangelical conservatives, and it sounds like this. You evangelicals actually are making the Bible say something the Bible never says. The Bible doesn't claim that every one of its verses come directly from God. The Bible never makes that claim. And, and the Bible certainly is not saying that every single verse is absolutely true. And the question is, how often does the Bible have to say that for us to assume God is still speaking? How often does God have to say, that's me also, and this was me also? Does it have to be like the government candidate commercial at the end of the commercial where it says, you know, does, does God have to say at the end of every chapter, this chapter, I approve of this message, you know, I'm God Almighty and I approve of this message. Does, does it have to have that? Does it have to have, thus saith the Lord before every verse in the Bible, all the thousands of verses? Or is this kind of like checking chlorine levels in a swimming pool? When you check the chlorine levels in a swimming pool, do you have to draw a vial so many times that the pool is empty and you test every single one of the vials to find out what the quality of the pool is? No, those vials are representations of the quality of the whole pool. So you draw one from here and one from here and one from here and you know what the entire pool is like. And so there are verses that are kind of explicit, thus saith the Lord, You can read it right there on the label. This is God's word. And then there are other verses that say it's all that good. The whole thing, this is just simply a representative part. The whole of the Old Testament is that authoritative. It contains the very same authoritative qualities as do these thus saith the the Lord verses. And we have some some passages like that. Paul, it's a classic passage in 2 Timothy 3.16 where he says all scripture... All, that, that is to say, all of the Old Testament writings, all scripture is breathed out, exhaled from the mouth of God. When you speak, you breathe out. And, and he's saying, Paul is saying, no uncertain terms, that when you're reading the Old Testament, God is breathing out every one of those words. Not just the thus saith the Lord explicit verses. Every one of them is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And Peter echoes the same kind of idea, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy, so the the entire prophetic material, there's huge prophetic material in the Old Testament, all the prophetic material, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is encouraging his readers to know the fact that when the Old Testament speaks prophetically, and Paul is saying when you read any passage in the Old Testament, you may know with absolute certainty that those words were breathed out from the mouth of of God, and they therefore carry God's authority, no less than God's authority. Authority. So many places where we don't find this explicit, thus saith the Lord, direct quotation, we're still told nonetheless that God is the one who is speaking. Look at this quote from Grudem. 
And you can look these verses up, and I think it's very instructive and helpful. Uh, in Matthew 19.5, the words of the author in Genesis 2.24, not attributed to God in the Genesis narrative, are quoted by Jesus as words that God said. It's interesting. So if you go back and you read the passage, it's the narrator saying, you know, he says, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, and so the two shall become one and all of that. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The narrator says that, but when Jesus says it, he doesn't say Moses said that. He says God said that. It's interesting. In Mark 7, 9 through 13, the same Old Testament passage can be called interchangeably the commandment of God or what Moses said or the word of God. In Acts 1, 16, the words of Psalm, Psalms 69 and 109 are said to be words which, quote, the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Those are not prophetic necessarily. That's, those are Psalms. That's poetry inspired by God, coming forth from God's mouth. Words of scripture are thus said to be spoken by the Holy Spirit. Many other passages could be cited, but the pattern of attributing to God the words of Old Testament Scripture should be very clear. Moreover, in several places, it is all of the words of the prophets or the words of the Old Testament Scripture that are said to compel belief or to be from God. So the Bible's view of the Old Testament is very clear. It's authoritative. It comes from God's mouth, whether it says, thus saith the Lord, or not. It all comes from God. But what about the New Testament? Did the New Testament authors claim this same kind of authority? Were they bold enough to say, this is as good as that? This is as authoritative as from the mouth of God as any thus saith the Lord quotation in the entire Old Testament. A couple of passages, 1 Corinthians 14. This is the Apostle Paul. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual He should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. He's written on a host of topics up to chapter 14. He's saying all that stuff, those were commands from God. I didn't make that up. That was from the Lord. And this this is a really important passage, 2 Peter. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. And, now he's not setting them in contrast or in distinction, remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Those were authoritative words. You better hold on to those words. And, with no break, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist. What are they twisting? Whose letters are they twisting? Whose words are they twisting? They're twisting the Apostle Paul's words, he says. So, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So, Peter, writing under divine inspiration puts New Testament apostolic writings on par with the authority of Old Testament writings. So in this text, the church of all ages is called to remember the writings of the, of the holy prophets and the command of the Lord through the writings of the apostles. And we're warned against twisting the New Testament scriptures the way that some have twisted the Old Testament authoritative words from God. This is very clear. Now, now where does this take us? 
some would say here, even at this point, big deal. Maybe you haven't really proved anything. All you've done is basically you've said the Bible is from God because the Bible says it's from God. It's, it sounds like you're reasoning in a circle. You're saying, you know, I could, I could say this. My objection could simply be, yeah, well, well, maybe they were ignorant enough. All of them, the whole lot of biblical writers were actually ignorant enough to think, gullible enough to think that their words proceeded from the mouth of God. They weren't, but they all thought so. Or maybe, maybe they were deceptive enough to want to lead people to believe that all their words were from God. So you can't just quote the Bible to say that the Bible is authoritative word from God. So how do we prove that these writings in these 66 books are from God? And there are certain kinds of evidence that we could look at this morning that back up the claim that the Bible is divinely inspired. And I'll list them off, though we won't have time to go through them in in detail. Fulfilled prophecy. Now, these are great places to go with unbelievers who have questions about things. Talk about the fulfilled prophecies. How did that happen? Some of these prophecies are very specific, naming names sometimes, right? Specific battles and all kinds of things that are going on. Fulfilled prophecies, not something to sneeze at. The unity of the parts is quite amazing. When you think that the Bible, the the 66 books that are in our Bibles were written across a span of 1,500 years. Most of these people didn't know each other. They have different cultural backgrounds, different ways of life, and yet they all incidentally, coincidentally, are telling the very same story? That is amazing. And they really, in a very real sense, pick up where the last generation left off and continue the progressive story of redemption. They're all telling this one giant story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Every book of the Bible is advancing this redemptive story. God rescues fallen sinners by the sacrifice of his son. How is it? They didn't have a conference and call this together and say, let's all write a book. Okay, it's going to take 1,500 years. Everybody's spread out and let's do this. Now, the, the unity of the Bible is a powerful testimony to the fact that God has breathed all these words out. He's the one who unifies and brings all this together. The risen Jesus affirmed it, right? When Jesus rose from the dead and hallelujah, this is the morning we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. When Jesus rose from the dead, the mere fact that he was up and walking around in Palestine meant that everything he ever said was true. All of his claims were absolutely true. His claim to to deity, to divinity, his, his claim to fulfill the words of Old Testament prophecy, and Jesus himself had a high view of Scripture. He quoted the Bible indiscriminately as though it settles the argument. It is written. Case closed. Jesus believed in an authoritative Bible, and therefore the risen Jesus' testimony to the authority of God's word is the most powerful testimony we could ever ask for as evidence. Archaeological discoveries continue to corroborate and conform, uh, support the biblical testimony. Changed lives of those in the first century all the way up into the present. My own life has been changed. These are things that we can use as we talk with, with folks who don't believe the Bible is from God. or They have questions about that. We can say, hey, listen, there, there are good reasons to believe this. But I think as Christians, there's an even better reason to believe it. And that is because the Bible itself is self-authenticating. The Bible testifies 
about itself, that it is from God. God, in these words, as we are opening up the pages of our Bibles, God is confirming this is the truth from me, from my mouth. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Love this statement from the Westminster Confession on, on Scripture. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter. These are all reasons to believe this is from God. The heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy, the power of its doctrine, the majesty of the style. You read the book of Hebrews, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts. That's the unity I was just talking about. The scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. The full discovery it makes of the one, of the only way of man's salvation. The many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet, notwithstanding, even apart from that, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So does this, is this arguing in a circle? Is this saying, let's believe the Bible comes from God because the Bible tells me so? In a way, yes. But every belief system argues in a circle. Every belief system has an ultimate authority that it appeals to. You can ask questions, but ultimately you get to the bottom line. Why do you believe that? And it's self-referencing. It goes right back. So, for example... If you ask the scientific naturalist who's committed to science and things that can be confirmed and supported and put in a test tube and all of that sort of thing, and you ask him for the basis of his beliefs, he's going to appeal in all of his answers to what? To science. You might say, well, you're arguing in a circle. Well, well science is true. I mean, the scientific method is true. You can say, why is it that you that you cannot believe that the resurrection of Jesus is an historical fact. Why do you not believe that? And his answers are naturalistic answers. He says, well, it just can't happen. That doesn't happen, period. That does not happen in the world. Uh, find me a resurrection, right? Let, let's, let's try 10,000 corpses. Let's put them in to this particular place and let's wait and maybe let's pray and let's do all these other kind of scientific methods and none of them got up, therefore... The scientific method has proved that resurrections can't happen. No, you're appealing to your ultimate authority. Eventually, everyone's going to appeal back to their ultimate authority. <clears throat> and in that sense, when the scientist answers with that, what he's doing is opening his Bible. His Bible is scientific naturalism. So logic and proofs and evidences and all of that, they're wonderful. We shouldn't despise them. We should use them. And, and God... God sometimes uses them as we share them. But they are not as high an authority as the word of God itself. God's word itself is the highest authority. When proofs are there, when archaeology makes another discovery, we celebrate, but we're not more enamored with the Bible now that a higher authority has patted it on the head. Right? Well, now that the archaeologists say that the Bible is true, oh, you know, well, wait, what is your supreme authority? So if something gets to talk down on the Bible, something? See, the Bible is above judgment. This book is not being judged. This book judges. 
This book judges its readers. It is not being judged. There's no such thing as higher criticism. This book does not submit to higher criticism, even though God is happy to evidence his word as true in many different ways. And we're, we're happy to mention those things, but, but the Bible is true, and we believe that. Now, if God is the author of this entire volume, if these words are breathed out by him, what would be our expectations with regard to the truth claims of the Bible? <clears throat> that brings us to inerrancy. Um, now, inerrancy, again, it just comes right back to authorship. So our lawnmower manual illustration, right? My lawnmower manual is going to have mistakes in it. Why? Because I wrote it. It's going to have mistakes in it. So you're not surprised when it says there's something wrong with your lawnmower. Look for the bolt on the left-hand side, and you look on the left-hand side, and there is no bolt. The left-hand side is utterly boltless. You're not surprised because Matt for some bozo reason, wrote a lawnmower manual. He should have never done that. Now, if the lawnmower manual that I hand to you is signed by one Mr. Briggs and Mr. Stratton, everything changes, doesn't it? Right? If it says there's a bolt on the left side and you go to look on the left side, you look expecting a bolt. If it says there's a bolt running through the ripcord, you expect a bolt for some reason. Briggs and Stratton know what they're doing. There's going to be a bolt running through the ripcord, right? The pull cord. So, all of that is related to authorship. And we go to that and we believe that Briggs and Stratton are going to give us a reliable, authoritative manual because of two things. We believe that it's going to be truthful. These guys did not write a manual for us to break our lawnmowers. They wrote us a manual so that we could fix our lawnmowers and knowledgeable. They know what they're doing. They know the inside and out. Matter of fact, the analogy goes even further. They design the lawnmower, right? Well, the same thing is true. When we go to our Bibles, we expect them to be truthful because God doesn't lie. And we expect them to reflect the knowledge that God has because God is not ignorant and he's not unaware. So if our Bibles say, look on the left-hand side, there should be a bolt. You expect to find a bolt. There it is. If he says it's a matter of history, this person was governor, we expect to find out that there he was. Yes, he was governor, right? So all of the claims of the Bible... Really, they tie back to the attributes of God. It's much like when a judge speaks. The words of the judge are not disconnected from the judge. They express the authority of the judge in his courtroom. So it's not like the judge possesses, let's say, 10 pounds of authority. But then the further you get out as he speaks words, that authority tapers off, right? Because it's getting further and more removed from the judge. No, the words are an expression of the judge's authority. Every word that judge says in his courtroom is, is perfectly coextensive. It matches his authority that he possesses in himself. So the Bible proceeds with the very attributes that God has. God is truthful. The Bible, what he breathes out, is truthful. God is not ignorant. God knows. God is omniscient. Therefore, the Bible will have true and accurate understanding of the world. <clears throat> He doesn't lie, so they won't be deceptive. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And God isn't ignorant, so the words of Scripture won't be wrong, inaccurate, or misguided. Proverbs 35. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. 
again, Grudem, belief in inerrancy simply means that the Bible always tells the truth and that it always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. This definition does not mean that the Bible tells us every fact there is to know about any one subject, but it affirms that what it does say about any subject is true. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. This is, this is a huge statement in ancient Hebrew culture because these were the hottest furnaces, these furnaces that were made, these ovens that were made on the ground, and they just had tremendous heat. And it says, the words of Scripture, if you put them in the hottest furnace imaginable, there's nothing that rises to the top that's not perfect. Everything is perfect. There's no dross, right? And they say, you can, you can put that in there and you can put it in again and again, and seven is the number of perfection. You could put it in a perfect number of times, hundreds of thousands of times if you want. You could test it and there would be nothing that rises to the top as impure. God's words are pure words. So how do we unwittingly, accidentally, how do we read an error-free Bible in an erroneous way because it is possible to do that. One way to do that is by assuming the Bible is always intending to communicate with technical precision. This is what happened in the Copernican Revolution, the time of Galileo. And Galileo looked through his telescope and he said, huh, wow, it, it looks like the sun is actually not moving. We are. The sun is in the center and we're moving around the sun. And theologians and leaders in the church said, no, that can't be true. There are verses all over the place that say that the sun rose, the sun fell. The sun is obviously moving. It's a, it's a weird thing in Joshua when the sun stands still. So obviously the Bible says that the sun is moving, and therefore Galileo, your telescope can't be right. And, and they affirmed that. Mark 16, 2 was one such text, and very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen. So what, what happens when it seems like the Bible and science contradict each other? Well, there are a couple of possibilities. One is that we're reading the scientific data incorrectly, and time will tell that we had been reading the scientific data incorrectly. The other possibility is we're reading the Bible incorrectly. That's what was happening in Galileo's time. They were Literally, the, the clergymen refused to look through the telescope. They said, don't say a word. We'll, we'll exile you. You will not be allowed to teach your view because it is patently unbiblical. So how do you sort this out? Well, the Bible uses everyday language to describe things all the time. So your meteorologist, when he says, tomorrow the sun's going to come up at 6.02, in the morning, nobody calls him and says, what an idiot. Didn't you take class? Didn't you go to science class? But come on, the sun doesn't move. Well, no, he's describing it as we see it. And so the same thing. The Bible's not trying here to give technically scientific descriptions of reality. It's just describing it the way your meteorologist did last night. Don't get so technical about it. She's saying the sun rose, the sun fell, just like we hear on the news. The Bible often speaks in those kinds of ways. It gives round numbers for how many people died in a battle. 185,000 Assyrians perished. Does that mean it wasn't 185,002? Does it mean literally not more and not less than 185,000 to be exact? 
uh, if, if it records a battle in which there were 100 chariots and archaeologists go to that site and they find 106 chariots, has the Bible been proved false? No, it's rounding a number. 100 chariots. It's not being so technically specific. Some will get uptight about Matthew 13 where Jesus said the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds and then scientists find that, no, there's actually a smaller seed than the mustard seed, therefore the Bible can't be true. Jesus was not making a globally, scientifically technical statement about seed life on the earth. It was, an illust- it was a sermon illustration. It was not a biology class. So probably the case is that he was simply thinking about what Palestinian farmers sowed in his area, and they sowed and of those, all the seeds that were sowed in that area. The smallest one was a mustard seed. You don't have to make it global. It's just an everyday language type of thing. All right, so that's, that's one way to misread the Bible is to, to believe that it's always intending to communicate with technical precision. And this relates to that, assuming the Bible never uses free or loose quotations. Look at this from Grudem. In contemporary American and British culture, we're used to quoting a person's exact words when we enclose the statement in quotation marks. This is called direct quotation. Written Greek at the time of the New Testament had no quotation marks or equivalent kinds of punctuation and an accurate citation of another person needed to include only a correct representation of the content of what the person said, rather like our indirect quotations. It was not expected to cite each word exactly. So if we make an announcement this morning or at Christmas time, and we say, tonight... All of the members of the children's choir will meet here at the church and will go caroling through the neighborhood of Lakeview. We'll meet here at 6 o'clock. And the person sitting next to you, probably the husband in the the situation, says, I didn't didn't hear what that was. And you repeat it, and you say, basically, meet tonight at 6. The kids are going caroling through the neighborhood. Now, is that what I said? It is what I said. It is what I said. You're not being required in that moment to, to provide a direct quotation you're giving the gist of what I said, and it's absolutely true. Somebody said, did I hear you say that there's a caroling event tonight? Well, technically, no, I did not say there's a caroling event tonight. What I said, no, I'm not going to do that, right? You'd look at me funny, because in the no- course of normal discourse, we do that all the time. The Bible does that, and so we don't need to worry about free and loose quotations. Third, assuming the Bible must display grammatical perfection. So if the original Greek of, of a New Testament writer has seems to manifest that that guy had trouble with subject-verb agreement. Um, Does that call into question the truthfulness of God's word? No, because, because inerrancy is not related to, is not subject to one's education. Truthfulness is not a matter of one's education. So the French exchange student who's here and has her place robbed, and she's in the courtroom, and, and the attorney says, point to the man who who stole your stuff, and she points and she says, he the one who stealed it from me. It's just broken English. Are they going to say, you liar? I mean, truthful people don't talk like that. No, of course not. Broken English can, can, can send forth truth just as well as refined English, and deception can come through refined English just as well as deception can come through broken English. So it's not a matter of one's education. Biblical writers have different styles of writing, They have a different command of language. So Greek students will study and read, and their first project will be to translate the book of 1 John. Why? 
because it's the easiest book to translate. He doesn't have a big, wide vocabulary like the writer of Hebrews. So this is a great place for simple Greek students to begin. So none of that undermines the claim that the Bible is true. All right, so where does that land us practically? Authority and inerrancy in our daily lives. In Scripture, God expresses his lordship over history, the world, and my life. And sometimes God in his word, how many of us can identify with this, crosses my preferences. And he calls me to believe the truth and obey him. Now we can live, we can say we love God's word, and we can live in functional opposition to the authority of God in his word. We are functionally denying God his authority to speak in the pages of scripture. And we can do that in a number of different ways. I had a phone call probably a couple of years ago. It was a cold call to the office from somebody outside of the church. And uh, it was a young lady, and she was in distress, and she was a believer. And so we talked on the phone, and she said, I'm, I'm engaged. I'm looking to be married a month from now, and uh, we, need, we need somebody to do the wedding. And I started to ask some questions about her, about her relationship. And I uh, asked her about local church. Do you have a church? Do you have a pastor? You know, those sorts of things. And anyway, it comes out that she's engaged to a man who's not a believer. He makes no profession of faith. Uh, he's not interested in the things of the Lord, but he's a, not, he's a really nice guy, and she enjoys being with him, and he takes care of her. But he's not a believer. And... Uh, I said, do you, do you mind if I speak very honestly to you? I said, I don't, I don't know you, but you profess to be a believer. Um, and I, I wouldn't doubt that. I'm not doubting that in any way. God has, God has spoken on whether or not you're supposed to marry an unbeliever. He has already spoken. That's not a matter of your subjective sense of what you're supposed to do. It is very clear in God's authoritative word that you're not to marry an unbeliever. You're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And I said, so by all means, I would love for the two of you to come in. I would love to share the gospel with. I would love to talk with, with your boyfriend, with your fiance. I said, but, but you're going to have to push that marriage off. You can't marry this guy unless he becomes a believer, unless the Lord does some kind of work. And if you decide to marry him, what you've made is you've made a statement about who your ultimate authority is. Your next move is going to tell in a very palpable way where your ultimate authority lies. My ultimate authority is me and what I want to do and what I love and what I've grown to love. Or my ultimate authority is God and he has spoken and he is right and he is good and he is wise and he's not looking to hurt me. And so I believe it against my feelings, over against my feelings, I believe it. See, there can be a denial of the authority of God's word in very practical ways in our lives. Or I can deny its inerrancy. And I'd say, sure, yeah, God kind of stood behind the writing of the word, but he involved all these really fallible men with their own cultural ideas, and sometimes cultural ideas come through. And so, it's, you know, I mean, they were right for the most part, but when the apostles are all up and stirred up about this homosexuality issue, they're just patently wrong. They lived in a pre-scientific era. I mean, you can't fault the poor guys. They didn't know better. Well, no, what you're doing is you're undermining the truthfulness of God's word. You're undermining the authority of God to speak objectively, truthfully 
to us in a way that is, his truth is culturally transcending. It is timeless truth for all generations. God has spoken. Everything that he says is true. We believe it. If we disbelieve it, we disbelieve it to our own peril, to our own misery, our own foolishness. This amounts to a denial of the authority and truthfulness of God's word. If I refuse to join my life to a particular local church, I'm denying the functional authority of scripture. If I say how I approach God in worship doesn't really matter. The important thing is that I approach the right God. As long as I approach the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, everything else is up for grabs. I can be creative. I can involve painting and corporate worship. I can do this or do that. And that's all, that's all fine. As long as I'm worshiping and directing my praise to God, the one true God. Well, no, because God hundreds of times in his word says, here's how I want to be approached. Those who worship me must worship in spirit and in truth. And without this, without ritual, without graven images, he's giving all kinds of ways that we're not only supposed to worship the right God, but to worship the right God in the right way. For those, it's not as though God says, thus saith the Lord, worship me because I'm the only one God. And that's all he says. He says far more. And all of the things that God says are equally authoritative for our lives and should never be diminished. We don't take and leave things in scripture. We don't choose things and leave other stuff aside. It is not a tossed salad where you take radishes, you take lettuce, you take, you know, bell peppers and you leave everything else. So you take the whole deal. God is speaking authoritatively. Aurelius Augustine said this in his time in the fourth century, you who believe what you like of the gospels and believe not what you like, believe yourselves rather than the gospels. Ultimately, you want to establish your own biblical canon. You want to cut the verses you don't like and live on the verses that you do like. And that simply can't happen. You either take God as the authoritative Lord who speaks through his written word or you disbelieve the whole thing to your own demise. So again, this, this authority inerrancy, this is not just heady stuff. Belief in the authority of scripture is the foundational conviction that leads us to read the Bible with the attitude that says, speak Lord for your servant hears. With an attitude that comes before, we talked about this last week, comes before God's word and says, Lord, I submit. Whatever these verses say, I've never read this chapter before, but whatever these verses say, by your grace, I will believe them. By your grace, by your spirit, help me God. I will do them. I want to not only listen and be a hearer of the word, but a doer as well. I submit myself. You are Lord. Give me my marching orders. Here, it's time to read John 1. It's time to read Philippians 2. It's time to read Ezekiel 6. You're reading those chapters with an open heart saying, Lord, lead me, speak to me. Because there are looming areas and will be for the rest of our lives. Big pockets of ignorance. Things that we haven't yet understood in God's word. And that's fine. But the commitment of those who believe God's word is authoritative is a commitment that says, as soon as I hear you say it, Lord, I will believe it against my feelings, against my instincts, my gut. I will believe your word. Martin Luther said, to, to believe God's word, if God's word said to eat the dung on the street, I would not only eat it, but know it's good for me. It's a robust confidence when God says it. 
He means it, and it's true. So God speaks to us in the pages of Scripture, affirming his own authority, giving us our marching orders, feeding our faith with truth. A confident affirmation of the authority and truthfulness of God's word is the greenhouse in which all other doctrines will thrive. So we have one more week on the doctrine of Scripture. Next week we'll talk about two other elements of the doctrine of Scripture, then we'll move on into all the rest. So thanks for being here again. See you next week.